Hello, I'm Daniel. I'm going to give a teaching today from this text, Way of the Bodhisattva. This is the version I have. It's called Entering the Way of the Bodhisattva. And um, what we're going to talk about today is called Chapter 2, Confessing Misdeeds. Chapter 2, Confessing Misdeeds. And there's a lot of imagery in this chapter. And at first, when I read it, it really um, did not strike me in the best way because when there's a lot of imagery like this, I don't really like it that much. But this chapter really focuses on three things. Making offerings, going for refuge, and confessing misdeeds. The chapter is called Confessing Misdeeds, but really it focuses on those three things. And also on impermanence. Impermanence. That is just... Everything passes away, you know, including you and me. Everything passes away. That's what this chapter is really focused on. And sort of sort of negative things. And in the next chapter, it goes on to more like what can we do. So this is, I like to think of this as a right now it's like this chapter. And then the one after it is what can we do. Uh, there's a little bit of what can we do in this in this as well though. Okay. So... There's a teaching in Buddhism called the seven branches, and it's just seven things that help us cultivate virtue. And so in a lot of temples, you will, you will see people reciting the seven branch prayer or the seven limbed prayer. And I'm telling you that just to tell you that um, it is a list of seven things, and the first three are covered in this chapter. The first three, which are making offerings, going for refuge, and confessing misdeeds. Those are the first three. And then the last four are covered in the next chapter. Okay? So, uh, when we have that in mind, then we'll know in the reading when it when we're talking about offerings, when we're talking about refuge, when we're talking about misdeeds. Okay? So, I will begin the reading now. This is, again, chapter two of Way of the Bodhisattva, and I will comment throughout. So, here we go. In order to grasp that precious attitude, I make fine offerings to the Tathagatas, to the true Dharma, the Immaculate Jewel, and the Oceans of Qualities, Bodhisattvas. Um, that precious attitude is the attitude of the open heart which was what was talked about in the previous chapter to this one, that bodhicitta, that attitude of the open heart. In order to grasp this attitude, Shantideva's making offerings. Tathagatas are uh, Buddhas, enlightened beings. The Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. It's called a jewel because it's rare and wonderful. Okay? And the bodhisattvas, that rec represents the community. And there's going to be more on that later, but the community, which we call the sangha. Okay? So here, um, what Shantideva is about to do, I'm going to prepare you for it before I read it. Shantideva is a monk. He's a poor monk. He has no possessions. And so he's going to say what he wants to offer to the spiritual beings, to the Buddhas, to the Dharma, to the Sangha, to all of us, what he wants to offer. And it is, um, he's going to describe things that he can't offer. In this way, he's setting an intention. He's setting an intention um, 
to offer these things that he can't really offer. And the purpose of that is to overcome, the purpose of offerings in general is to help us overcome our lack of faith. And is that faith in the Buddha? Not really. It's faith in the teachings, but more importantly, it's faith in ourselves. We, um, we all struggle with that faith, especially faith in ourselves. We all struggle with that sometimes. And making offerings is a way to help us overcome that. To help us sort of feel a little more worthy. And according to Shantideva, just reflecting and thinking about offerings you would like to make in itself does something. So if you have nothing to give, you can still reflect on how great it is to give. Okay? Um... Yeah, so I'm going to read the offerings that he is thinking about giving. This is just intention setting. He's trying to strengthen his own faith, and this, and it's working. Okay, so here we go. As many fruits and flowers as there are, whatever kinds of medicine exist, however many jewels there are in the world, all clean and present, pleasant waters there may be, mountains of jewels and likewise forest groves, in solitary and delightful places, Bushes adorned with ornamental flowers and trees whose branches bow with splendid fruit. Incense and perfumes is from divine worlds and so forth. Wish-fulfilling trees, jewel trees, and crops that grow without the need to be plowed. All ornaments that are fit to be offered. And lakes and pools bedecked with lotuses where lovely swans have most delightful calls. Everything that's unowned extending to the edges of the realms of infinite space. I imagine taking these and offer them well to the sages, greatest of beings, and their offspring. Sublime and greatly compassionate recipients, think of me lovingly. Accept these from me. I am bereft of merit, destitute, and I have no other wealth that I could offer. May the protectors of others wheel accept these through their power for my sake. So, I am bereft of merit, destitute. I like that a lot. Not I like that, but it's humility. He's expressing humility. He's saying I'm not good enough for this. Please accept this offering to make me part of this lineage and tradition. I'm not good enough for this. Please accept my intention as an offering. That's that's what he's saying. And again, that's not really for some other force to accept, for some other being to accept, but rather it's to help him feel accepted. By asking, it helps him awaken his own faith, and it can do that for us as well. And I think we all feel bereft of merit sometimes. We all feel like, I'm not good enough. You know, I've done all these bad things. I give in to temptation so much, right? I'm not good enough, and I of course, I'm bad at being mindful, bad at meditating, bad at paying attention. I'm not good enough. We all feel that way sometimes, and Shantideva felt that way too. And it's weird to think that a such a revered spiritual teacher did feel that way. But he, he did, and he's, he's making himself relatable by expressing this, I think. And so there's some more. Forevermore I offer all my bodies to the victorious ones and to their offspring. O sublime beings, accept me entirely, and I will be your dedicated servant. Because you have accepted me completely, not fearing existence, I will benefit beings. I will transcend my previous misdeeds and never do another wrong again. 
So he's saying that just from setting this intention, from saying, I'm going to walk the Bodhisattva path, I'm going to open my heart, I'm going to try to help others and help myself and spread compassion in this world. Just by setting that intention and making that declaration, he's part of the Bodhisattva tradition. He has been accepted completely. And if we set this intention, we can feel accepted completely too. We are part of something no one gets left out. We are trying to help all beings. We are trying to spread compassion and live with an open heart, open mind, open awareness. That is what we're trying to get to. And by setting that intention and really meaning it, we are a part of the lineage. We are a part of the Bodhisattva tradition. We are a part of everything that's come before and everyone trying to practice this now and everything that's coming after. Even if we feel like we're alone in doing this, by setting the intention, we are not. We are part of something greater than ourselves. And just by listening to me, you are part of this too. If you want to be. You don't have to. And then um, there's going to be more imagery, more offerings that he's setting an intention and visualizing doing, okay? Within this sweetly fragrant house for bathing, where the bright and lustrous floors are paved with crystal, alluring pillars are aglow with jewels, and glistening pearls are draped in canopies. I bathe the Shugatas and Bodhisattvas from precious vases that have been filled full of water, imbued with many fragrances accompanied by songs and harmonies. That part about songs, that makes me think of chanting, which if you're ever in a Buddhist temple, ever near a Buddhist community, you will notice chanting. And it really didn't sit right with me at first when I first started practicing, but I've come to the point where I kind of like it. it um, it's sort of a way of, it's another way of offering, offering with our voices, and it's a way of, if you're doing it in a group, of coming together with your voices and feeling like you're part of something. So um, a common Buddhist chant is Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum, and it means the jewel in the lotus. The lotus is who you are and the jewel is your awakened true nature that is within you. So when we're singing a chant like that, we are, we are really um, sort of bowing to ourselves and our innate goodness, innate goodness. So in that sense, I like it. So uh, more imagery here. With cloths that are beyond compare and clean, infused with a fine scent, I dry their bodies and then I offer them the finest robes, well dyed and most delightfully perfumed. I drape Samantabhadra, Lokeshvara, Manjushri and other noble beings with fabrics that are delicate and soft and hundreds of the finest ornaments. You don't know. have to know who those figures are. Those are bodhisattvas. There will be another uh, appearance by them later in this chapter. But they are sort of, uh, maybe they're historical beings and maybe they're not. I think they're probably not. But they sort of embody certain things and we can think about them and think about trying to embody their good qualities. Manjushri, for example, is the bodhisattva that represents wisdom and he's said to have a sword that cuts through ignorance not a i don't think a literal sword but in statues he will have a sword if you see a buddhist figure with a sword that's probably him but 
um, that's we're trying to cut through our ignorance. That's what we're trying to do on the path. And when I feel really ignorant, I can reflect on the qualities of Manjushri. Um, and he's also sometimes called Manjugosha. It's the same guy. But I can reflect on his qualities when I'm trying to dispel my own ignorance, my own delusions, when I'm not seeing things clearly. Okay? So anyway, Shantideva is saying that he's, he's giving offerings of sacred robes to these beings. Okay? And again, he's just setting an intention. He's not really doing it, but I, I think he is visualizing it. He's picturing giving these things. And in a sense, that's helping him feel like he is giving something. Like, the, like polishing the purest refined gold, I apply the finest scents whose fragrances waft everywhere throughout the billion worlds to the radiant bodies of all Shugatas. Shugatas are just Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, awakening beings. I offer the great beings I venerate, the lords of sages, every fragrant flower, mandarava, lotus, jasmine, and so forth, and pleasing garlands strung attractively. I also offer billowing clouds of incense filled with the sweetest, most enchanting scents, and royal feasts I offer them as well, replete with an assortment of food and drink. Further, I make an offering of jeweled lamps arranged in rows on golden lotuses, I scatter the petals of attractive flowers on a paved floor anointed with perfume. So some people um, will have Buddha statues around and they will give all these things. Flower petals, food, drink, and they'll burn incense. So yeah, people will actually put food in front of a statue. And this is, again, just to help us awaken our faith and to set our intention. I have a Buddha statue in my living room. And I do burn incense in front of it daily as an offering. And it's just an homage to the sacred beings that have come before, to the teachers of the Buddhist tradition, to the history. It's an homage. It's, it's the same as taking a moment of silence when someone has passed, right? It is just to generate respect and faith within myself and to remind myself how important all this is. I don't do offerings of food and drink or flower petals, but I could. I could do that. That would not feel completely strange to me. But you will see that in, in Buddhist communities. People do that sort of thing often. I offer those who are compassionate, numberless palaces adorning the sky, beautifully glowing with strings of pearls and jewels and echoing with melodious songs of praise. I always offer to the lords of sages beauteous jeweled parasols with golden staves, fine-shaped, upright, and pleasing to the eye, the rims festooned with winsome ornaments. And furthermore, may there extend clouds of attractive offerings with lovely tunes and harmonies that soothe all beings' sufferings. May rains of gems and flowers and more continuously shower down on all the jewels of the true Dharma as well as on stupas and likenesses. Um, likenesses are statues of the Buddhas or statues of other Buddhist teachers. Um, and stupas are grave sites. So when a the Buddha or rare, very respected Buddhist teachers have died. Sometimes uh, kinds of shrines have been erected there. And those are called stupas. And that's it's supposed to be where an actual Buddhist teacher 
is dead and it is their remains are there and you can make offerings at the at the shrine at the stupa okay okay so he's saying he wants to shower down blessings not just on other practitioners and not just on teachers that have come before but on their grave sites and on statues of them as well as Manjugosha and the rest make offerings to the victorious ones, I offer to the Tathagatas, the protectors, and their offspring. Um, their offspring are those of us practicing. We are considered children of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Okay, so when, when we hear that word offspring, that's what we're talking about. It's not descendants. Um, but it's just that because we've entered into this, we're supposed to be thinking of ourselves as sons and daughters of the Buddha. The word lineage gets thrown around in Buddhism a lot. And that's the same thing. I extol the oceans of qualities with oceans of melodies and praise. May clouds of hymns and praise of them arise just so continuously. I prostrate, bowing as many bodies as there are atoms in all the realms, to all the Buddhas of the three times, the Dharma and the Sublime, sublime Sangha. I prostrate to the sacred sites and stupas of the Bodhisattvas, I also prostrate to the abbots, masters, and supreme adepts. Prostrating is bowing. So you will see Buddhists bow in front of statues. And that's we're bowing to sublimate our ego and to just to generate faith and respect again to what has come before. And, um, and again, like chanting, when I first started practicing, I thought, well, that's weird. Why am I bowing in front of the statue? Why am I doing this, right? But it is just to help us get our ego in check and to generate faith and set intentions and just realize, oh, this is a big deal. This is serious. Um, our practice should not be a hobby. It should be more than that. And that helps us see it as more than a hobby, okay? Until I reach enlightenment's essence, I go for refuge to the Buddhas. I go for refuge to the Dharma and Sangha of Bodhisattvas too. So, refuge. Refuge vows are what we call it when someone officially declares that they want to be a Buddhist. Okay? And these are called the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And they are the things that we say we're going for refuge in. So these are the things that we lean on when it feels like we don't belong here. When it feels like we're not good enough for this practice or for this world, we lean on these things when things are very hard. And these are the things we can turn to, okay? So, refuge in the Buddha. What's the Buddha? The Buddha represents the historical figure that created the first Buddhist teachings, created Buddhism, we could say. We call him the Buddha. His name was Siddhartha Gautama, and he came up with the teachings that we're following uh, 2,500, 2,600 or so years ago. And so he's an important figure. But really, we're also taking refuge in the Buddha. Buddha means awakened one. And it also represents the awakening that's within us. Because in this tradition, we teach that we have Buddha nature. That is, at our, at our center, at our core, we have a basic goodness and awareness that is positive and good and wise so it's sort of the opposite of maybe spiritual teachings that say that we're bad at our core no we're good at our core 
and we're also going to our true nature, which is good, for refuge. We can always remind ourselves our true nature is good. I can, I can handle this because my true nature is good, okay? It's empowering. And in a sense, our teachers, we can think of people that have taught us as going for refuge in the Buddha as well. Um, that can be a little tricky at times because people that have taught us are alive and they're around and they make mistakes. Whereas the Buddha, I can think about refuge in the Buddha and I know the Buddha, he's not here. He can't make mistakes, right? So um, in that sense, it helps to have that kind of that guide that's not present. But guides, the point is guides help us on the path. People that know more than us help us on the path. People that can set an example help us on the path. And our own heart is our guide as well. And when we learn how to live in an open-hearted way, um, we can get a lot of benefit from reflecting on our own heart. Okay? Okay. So the second one is the Dharma. Take refuge in the Dharma. And that is the teachings of the tradition. The teachings of the tradition. We go to the teachings. We can turn to the teachings when things are hard. We can remind ourselves when things are going bad that this is going to pass. This isn't permanent. This too shall pass. We can read texts like this when we're having trouble manifesting compassion in our lives. That's the Dharma too. We can um, remind ourselves of teachings like, like right speech and we can remind ourselves not to tell falsehoods and not to gossip and that's the Dharma. We can remind ourselves how those kinds of things are going to get in our way in the way of our well-being and harmony. And that can be really important to have those reminders. So the Dharma is just all the teachings of Buddhism, of which there are many. And that is the Dharma. We go to the teachings, and the teachings can be enormously meaningful to us. So the Buddha is for the example and sort of something to try to live up to. And the Dharma is what are we trying to do? It's the teachings, okay? And then lastly is what we call the Sangha. And here he, he called it the Sangha of the Bodhisattvas. A lot of people just say the Sangha. And that's the spiritual community. That is people we know that are working towards the same kinds of goals we are. Okay? So if you're part of a temple, your temple, the people in your temple can be your Sangha. And if you're not, there's other things that you can do to try to find a community. But an important thing is this. How, why does community help us? It helps us because we sort of tend to become like the people we spend time with. And so it can really be enormously helpful to us to spend time with people that have the same kinds of goals as us. Compassion, making the world a better place, mindfulness, paying attention to the world around us. These are things that, uh, virtue, being good people, we want to be around people that are seeking to embody these things, just like we are. It's enormously helpful to have other people around who are engaged in the same goals as we are. And uh, the truth is that you have, I'm part of the community of Bodhisattvas because it's also everyone that's trying to do this could be said to be part of the community. Um, Obviously, it's a little easier if you've got people around you can spend time with, but you are part of something just by setting the intention and resolving to be part of it. In that way, you are part of something. 
And so we can also reflect on the community, on the other people trying to do this. And we know it's hard, but it's hard for everyone. And just associating with virtuous people really helps you a lot. Okay? To the perfect Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who dwell in every direction, to those endowed with great compassion, I join my hands and supplicate. So it's just like another bow. And then what we're going to talk about next is called the Four Powers. Is a teaching called the Four Powers. And he doesn't describe it as the teaching of the Four Powers in the text, but his audience certainly knew what he was doing. The Four Powers are the things we do to cultivate virtue or to stop doing harmful things, okay? And these are sort of like the way we confess our misdeeds is this four-step process, okay? Remorse, support, making effort, and resolving not to commit again. Remorse, support, making effort, and resolving not to commit again. So remorse is just knowing you did something wrong. And support is turning to our refuges, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, to help us um, admit we've done wrong and help us set an intention to do better. And then effort is really that intention to cultivate virtue and to try to be better people. To try to grow so that maybe we don't even want to commit misdeeds again, right? And then resolving not to commit again is just saying, okay, well, I've done that and I'm not going to do it again. And that can be any misdeed. It can be cheating on your spouse. It can be stealing. It can, And it can even be misdeeds that harm yourself. What do I mean by that? I mean like when we overeat and then our stomach hurts. We maybe don't think of that as a misdeed, but uh, the point of this is we want to engage virtuously, compassionately with the world. You're part of the world. So you want to engage compassionately with yourself too. So, um, this is what Shantideva has to say about those four powers, okay? In this and in my other lives, throughout beginningless samsara, deluded I have done misdeeds. I've instigated them and also, compelled by ignorant confusion, I have rejoiced in them. I see they were mistakes. I confess to the protectors for my depths. I have, because of the afflictions caused, harm with body speech, and mind, to the three jewels and to my parents and to the gurus, among others. I, who am wicked and am stained by numerous failings, have committed misdeeds that are most terrible. Before the guides, I confess them all. So, I really like this part. I, who am wicked and am stained by numerous failings. So, if we start to think, I'm not good enough for this bodhisattva path, I don't have enough compassion. I don't have enough kindness in my heart. I'm not good enough. I can't do this. Well, look, Shantideva is willing to call himself a wicked and stained person with numerous failings. We all have numerous failings. We all struggle with our weaknesses. We all get carried away by, by our negative thinking. We all get carried away by our delusions too. And... We all cause harm, even to the people we love very much. We all cause harm. We all do that. You're not broken. You're human. You're not broken. You're not wicked and stained either. You're human. 
and Shanti Deva is human too. No one is left out. We are all human. We all make mistakes. Sometimes we make terrible mistakes. And so that's why we have to think about cultivating virtue. That's why we have to think about it. Um, so that's where we are. And also um, confessing to the Buddhas is sort of more it's confessing to yourself. What do I mean by that? I mean, we hide from the truth sometimes. We make excuses for ourselves. Oh, well, when I did this wrong thing, that's different from when other people do it, right? We cut ourselves a break really easily sometimes. Sometimes we don't, but sometimes we do. And confessing is just acknowledging, okay, well, I did this really wrong thing. I knew better. I should have known better. I should have behaved better. And I didn't. And I'm sorry for that. And I'm going to try to do better in the future. I'm going to try to do better in the future. That's what it's about, okay? And next, uh, things are going to get really heavy next. And we're going to talk about death and impermanence. So here we go. I am going to perish quickly before I'm cleansed of my misdeeds. How can I be rescued from them? I beg you, please deliver me. The Lord of death, untrustworthy, won't tarry for what's done or undone. So no one, whether or not they're ill, should place their trust in fleeting life. So what's that? That's You can die anytime. If you're waiting to apologize to someone, don't. You could die anytime. A Lord of death is a metaphor. Later, he's going to be called Yama in the text. He's a metaphor. Think of it as the Grim Reaper, okay? The Grim Reaper is not going to wait. The Grim Reaper is going to come whenever it comes, right? I must leave all behind and go. But I have not yet recognized that. For the sake of those I like or dislike, I have done various misdeeds. Those I don't like will cease to be, and those I like will cease to be. I myself will cease to be, and everyone will cease to be. All of the things that I have used will become objects of memory, as if experienced in a dream. I'll never see what's past again. Even during this life, many of those I like and dislike have passed away, and yet the terrible deeds I've done for their sake remain before me. Because I have not recognized that I as well am ephemeral, ephemeral, I have committed many wrongs out of delusion, greed, and hatred. Not pausing even a day or night, this life's continuously depleted. There is no extending it, so why would one like me not die? While I am lying in my bed, surrounded by all my relatives, I will experience alone the feeling of my life being cut. When seized by Yama's messengers, what good are friends, what good are kin, merit alone will guard me then. But I, alas, haven't practiced that. So he's saying, when our time comes, all we can do is reflect on whether or not we lived a good life. And also, um, we need to be reminded that life is fleeting. If we take something from someone that's not given, if we steal, well, I mean, we don't get to take it with us, right? It's not going to last forever. There are 
or as an expression, there are no pockets in burial shrouds. It just means you can't take anything with you. So maybe taking from other people is not worth it. And also, I think of um, instant pleasure. Pleasure comes and it's there for a minute, a few minutes maybe, and then it's gone, right? So taking pleasure at the expense of someone else is really um, a deluded thing to do, and it's not good. And when we're on our deathbeds, we're just going to have to reflect on the good and bad we've done. And the good we've done is going to help us. It's going to help us. But also it helps us right now. Because if you're doing good works, you feel better and you have harmony with the world around you. And you're less prone to making mistakes. Um, my mother always said to me, make good choices, you know, first day of school. Make good choices um, when I first started a job. Make good choices. And again, when she was... When she was sick, when she was on her deathbed, make good choices was what she said to me. And I think of that as the cultivation of virtue. If we really reflect on virtue and reflect on what our good deeds do for us and why they're important and why compassion is important, then we're going to make better choices for ourselves and for the world around us. So we're going to have more harmony and more well-being. You, I mean... You want to try to be the person that people don't have any reason to say bad things about. And that being said, maybe people will say bad things about you no matter what you do. But we want to try to be that person. We want to try to be that person. Protectors. We're going to go on. Protectors. I have carelessly committed numerous misdeeds for the sake of this ephemeral life. Oblivious there is such a danger. If people who are being led... To have their limbs chopped off today look different than they did before with their parched mouths and bloodshot eyes. What need to say how wretched I'll be when Yama's henchmen have me seized, their physiognomies dire and dread, and I am gripped by terrible pain. Who will protect me truly from this horrifying danger, I'll cry, eyes bulging with terror as I search in the four directions for a refuge. But seeing no protection in the four directions... I'll then despair. If there's no refuge in that place, what will I do at such a time? Thus from today, I'll go for refuge to the victors, guardians of beings who strive to protect all wanderers, those with great power who dispel all fear. Likewise, I truly go for refuge to the Dharma they have realized, which dispels the terrors of samsara and to the Sangha of Bodhisattvas. So he's saying, this is it. I'm struggling with suffering and death. Buddhism is my refuge. Buddhism is my lighthouse, my protector, my refuge. When I'm struggling, I can turn to the examples of the Buddhas. I can turn to the teachings, the Dharma, and I can turn to my community. That is where what it's about. I take refuge. And in Buddhism, um, refuge vows are a thing one can do to pers uh, officially become a Buddhist. And it's sort of about setting an intention. Again, it's about declaring that you want to be part of this, that you want to do better, that you want to live a more mindful, compassionate, awakened life. And 
there's official ceremonies that are done, and I think it's, it's not, there's not, like, I'm being very careful here. It's not like there is a magic energy that comes to you from the Buddha or something. But it is like ceremonies mean things to human beings. Vows mean things to human beings. And it's with that in mind that we do ceremonies and we set intentions because it means something to us. I can tell you that when I took refuge vows, it meant something to me. It's sort of changed my commitment to the path. And the commitment, we need to have a strong commitment to the path because the path's not always easy, okay? Okay. Um, so we're going to talk about more offerings now. He is going to talk about giving himself to bodhisattvas. And bodhisattvas, again, are just, they may be based on historical figures or maybe not, but they represent things we're trying to embody, Okay. So in particular, Avalokiteshvara is a bodhisattva that represents compassion. And Kasiti Garba is a bodhisattva that represents uh, vows. I have Kasiti Garba tattooed on my arm because he is a guy that means a lot to me. And maybe I'll talk about those bodhisattvas another time, but I'm just going to uh, read to you how he's offering to them. Petrified with dread, I give myself over to Samantabhadra. I also make an offering to Manjugosha of my body. I cry a miserable wail to guardian Avalokiteshvara, whose acts of mercy are unmistaken. I beg, protect me, who have done wrong. To noble, King, to noble Akasha Garba and to Kushiti Garba, to every one of the protectors with great compassion, I cry from my heart in search of refuge. I go for refuge to Vajrapani upon the sight of whom from fear malevolent beings like the henchmen of Yama flee in the four directions. And again, we don't have to think of these as real spirit beings or anything, but they are things to think about. They're things to think about. There's qualities we're trying to have, so they are things we can reflect on. I have in the past transgressed your word, but now that I've seen the great peril, I go to you for refuge and plead. Swiftly eliminate this fear. If one must do as doctors say from fear of ordinary illness, what need to speak of being infected continuously by the sickness of the hundred wrongs of lust and such? Our mindlessness, our lack of control of ourselves, our lack of attention, our delusion, these things are like sicknesses. And Buddhism can be seen as like a treatment plan. So we're going to do these practices and we're going to study these teachings to try to help us overcome our distress and our neuroses and our delusions because those things are getting in our way. Lashing out in anger gets in your way. Giving into lust gets in your way. Giving into greed gets in your way. And that's why we talk about virtue so much because those things get in the way and virtue is the quality we're trying to cultivate to overcome them. And a lot of Buddhist texts um, seem to talk about virtue first and talk about meditation practices after. And sometimes people read those and they're like, this is boring. I don't want to read the virtue stuff. Can I skip over this? And it's important not to. It's important not to. Um, I'm thinking about, there's a text I have called the Manual of Insight. And it's a, a really deep Buddhist text. 
and it, it starts with virtue and it goes through virtue for a, it's a very big book and it goes through virtue for a long time before it's ever about meditation. All right. So it's important. This is an important thing to cultivate and we should not leave it aside. Because if we're not trying to be good people, that can get in our way. That can get in our way. If even one of these can ruin all the people who live in Jambudvipa and no other medicine can cure it, can it be, can be obtained in any direction... To think that I might not, as directed by the omniscient healer, who removes every pain, would be blameworthy and completely deluded. So, Jambudvipa is the homeland of the Buddha. And so, he's saying, even in the homeland of the Buddha, people are still struggling. Why don't I turn to Buddhism? Omniscient, the omniscient, omniscient healer is a name for the Buddha. And it's just, he's described as like a doctor. So, he diagnoses. The illness is, I'm going to tell you about the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are the foundation teaching of Buddhism, and it is like a doctor in that the Buddha is identifying a problem, say, discovering the cause of the problem, and then identifying the treatment. Identifying if it's curable, and then identifying the treatment. Okay, So the problem is the world has suffering. The world has suffering. That's the first Noble Truth. The second Noble Truth is suffering is the result of craving. Or sometimes it's called attachment. And the third noble truth is there is a way out of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the Buddhist path. So there's suffering in life. Um, the cause of suffering is attachment or craving. That is just we obsessively want things to be different than they are. We want a life with no pain. No old age, no death, none of that. We want all that to be gone. And just wanting that gets in our way. But the Buddha discovered a way out. And the way out is this path. These teachings are the way to suffer less. It's the treatment for the illness of the suffering of life. And so the Buddha is sometimes described as a doctor. And what he's trying to cure is the suffering of life. Okay, and we'll probably talk a lot more about this later, but we get so caught up, we're so selfish, and we get so caught up in this, um, I like to say that we're trying to cultivate a mind that says, right now it's like this, what can I do, instead of a mind that says, why me, why is this happening to me, okay, because our natural state is to have that why is this happening to me when something bad happens? And that can get in our way. Whereas instead, if we can come at it from, okay, right now it's like this, what can I do? That's a healthier way of coming at it. And the truth is, it helps us solve our problems better to come at it that way. It helps us solve our problems better to have an attitude of what can I do than an attitude of why is this happening to me, okay? If I must, we're still talking about death here. If I must be quite careful of a minor ordinary chasm, what need to mention the abyss where I'll fall a thousand leagues far for long? It is not right to sit content and say, I will not die today. It is inevitable the time will come when I will cease to be. We don't know when it is, right? 
Could be any time, really. Life is fleeting. We don't like to think about that much, but life is fleeting. Death can come at any time. Who will grant me freedom from fear, and how will I escape from this? I certainly will no longer be. How can my mind remain at ease? My past experiences are gone, and what do I have left of them? But out of my fixation on them, I've gone against the Guru's words. We obsess about the past sometimes, and we are trying to live there sometimes when we think about, like, how great things were, or how we wish we had done things differently. And that saps our joy in the present. If I must leave this life behind along with family and friends and go off somewhere else, what good all those I like or dislike? It would be right to only think in just this way all day and night. Non-virtue leads to suffering. How can I be freed from it? Whatever misdeeds I have done for being ignorant and deluded, whether they're naturally unwholesome or disobedient misdeeds, within the presence of protectors, from fear of suffering, I join my palms and prostrate re repeatedly, confessing every one of them. I supplicate you, guides, accept that my misdeeds have been mistaken. They were not good, and for that reason, I'll never do such acts again. So, wow, right? Misdeeds get in our way. They cause disharmony with the world around us. Um, and the truth is, I think a lot of the time, we know we're doing something wrong. We know we're not making the best choice, but we come up with excuses for why it's okay when we do it. Why it's okay. Why it's maybe not okay. Maybe we can be judgmental when someone else does this thing. But when we do it, oh, well, I'm struggling with this and that's why I did it. Oh, I'm struggling with this. We give ourselves a break at times really easily, and then we don't extend that to others. Which is even worse that we don't extend that to others. But that is the situation. And this path calls us to face ourselves honestly, to face our misdeeds honestly, and say, just really know, oh, well, I could have done better there. I could have done better there. I could have acted in a more skillful way. I should not have dated that person. I should not have taken that thing. I should not have misled people about who I am. Because this path is about learning to be more genuine with others and to be more genuine with yourself. So that we know, we can examine why we did what we did, but there are no excuses on the spiritual path. None. We want to stop being people that make excuses for their bad behavior and instead strive to be better. And that is very hard sometimes, but that's why we're setting this intention to strive to be better. We can live in a better way and we can make this world a better place. Okay, we can. It is in our power to do that. We just have to resolve to do it and really mean it. This spiritual path is not a hobby. We should not think of it as a hobby. This is a new direction for our lives to make the world a better place for ourselves and others. And that's an important thing to do. So that's why we're striving to open our hearts, open our minds, and open our awareness. These three are the things we're trying to do. And this text in in particular, is about learning to open your heart. We have we tend to have closed hearts because we've all been 
um, kicked in the heart in our lives. We all have been. Maybe some of us have been in different ways. Maybe some of us have been a lot. And some of us have been a little, but we have all been kicked in the heart and it has caused our hearts to close, to mistrust ourselves and to mistrust others. And we want to open our hearts. No one is left out of our hearts, uh, out of our loving awareness. We want to open our hearts in spite of the fact that we have been kicked in the heart. Vulnerability is good, and we want to learn how to be open and vulnerable with the people in our lives. That's what being genuine is about. So, we want to learn to not make excuses for ourselves. I don't need to rationalize why I indulged in this pleasure too much. I just need to acknowledge that I'm human. I'm human and I make mistakes. You're human and you make mistakes. But you're worthy also. Your core is awakened, loving awareness that is connected to all other beings. And we're all in this together. No one gets left out. Not even the people we really would like to see left out. No one gets left out. The core of all of us is basic goodness. And we can remind ourselves that when we think, I'm unworthy. When we think, oh no, this is for people that have their lives together. This isn't for me. No, it is for you. It is for all of us. And lastly, um, because we talked about refuge vows, if you're interested in refuge vows, in officially becoming a Buddhist and doing any sort of ceremony, um, you can inquire at your local temple, if you have one. And you can also send me a message and ask me for information about it. And I will talk to you about it at length. Um, yeah, we can do that. I've not explored giving people refuge vows very much myself, but I could, I could do that as a service. We should be thinking of ways to help each other. And like I said, it inspired and motivated me. So I think it does something for us. I think ceremonies do something for us. Taking vows does something for us. If we take it with the purest intention. Later on, we'll be talking about something called the Bodhisattva vow, which is another level of vows that Shantideva recommends that I have taken, that I also recommend. Um, but refuge vows are a prerequisite. It's a way to formally set your intention to join this path. To stop, uh, stop thinking of it as a hobby. Stop thinking of it as an interest. But to actually set an intention to make it part of your life and something you're doing. So, that's it for today. This has been the chapter on Confessing Misdeeds. And here is the book. If you want to get your own copy to follow along, because I'm going to do more of these. Um, it's a very good version of the text. I like it very much. So, thank you for taking the time to listen to me, and have a good day.